0: to start today's message by talking about the life of an octopus. Okay, so imagine with me for a moment that there's a mommy octopus and there's a daddy octopus and one day they decide to get away and so they book tickets to the octopus Bahamas, they drink some octopus piña coladas and eventually they make some octopus love, Okay. Only to find that eventually mommy finds out, mommy octopus finds out that she is pregnant with baby octopuses. And so what happens, there's a few things that's going to happen. The first thing that happens, the male, the daddy octopus, is actually going to go off somewhere and just die. Because if you didn't know, male octopus, after they um, impregnate their mate, they actually die. Okay, so that's the first thing that happens. second thing that happens, mommy octopus will begin to gestate a bunch of eggs inside of her. Okay? Now, a little while later, mommy octopus is going to give birth to a sack containing all of these eggs, at which point she's going to grab her sack of eggs and find a cave, a random cave somewhere where she could be safe. And she's going to spend the rest of her life in that cave, just lying down with the sack of eggs over her head. And she's just going to be continuously blowing seawater around that sack so that all the eggs get the nutrients they need to hatch. Now one day, she's going to look up at her sack of eggs and think, oh, my babies are ready to hatch. At which point, she's going to take one final big gulp of seawater, and as hard as she can, she's going to blow her sack of eggs as far away from her as she possibly could. And then shortly after, she also is going to die. Now, some of these eggs will end up hatching. Many of the eggs will actually never hatch. Some will be eaten up by shrimp and other sea creatures. Some just never get enough nutrients to be able to hatch. But some eggs will eventually hatch, and they will survive. And from these eggs, baby octopuses will emerge. But here's the thing. These baby octopuses will never see their parents They'll never know their parents. And everything an octopus needs to know about being an octopus is actually in their DNA. No one has to teach them anything. They don't need to take Octopus 101. They don't need to observe how to be an octopus from their parents. They come pre-programmed and ready to go. Now, why did I waste three minutes of your life talking about the life of an octopus? All that to say, you are not an octopus. What do I mean by that? If you come out of the womb and we drop you off alone in the world somewhere in the middle of nowhere, you will not survive, okay? The other day, you know, Zion, I've been learning from my son Zion that babies are like hardwired to bring destruction upon themselves. And so the other day, you know, Zion was playing in his room and I looked away for one second and when I looked back, he had the, um, the end of the electrical cord, the prongs from a heater in his mouth. It was unplugged, okay? Do not call Child Protective Services. It was unplugged, but I just kept thinking, man, he is just hardwired to destroy himself. God created us to be nurtured. He created us to be um, cared for, to have someone teach us what it means to be human, To teach us not to put dangerous electrical objects in our mouths. In other words, we are creatures that need to be formed. We are not like an octopus that comes ready to go when we have to. We need to learn how to be human. We aren't born fully functioning people yet. See, when you come out of the womb, you come out completely selfish and completely self-absorbed. You know, Zion, luckily, we have a dog, a small little Cheweenie. And luckily, because he doesn't have a sibling, he doesn't know how to share. But it's weird. He's been learning how to share because of our dog. And so he'll be sitting down eating his Cheerios, and he'll put one in his mouth, and then give one to Fig. One in his mouth, one to Fig. And Fig is so happy. He has gained so much weight. He is living the life. But when you originally come out of the womb, you come out completely selfish, completely self-absorbed, not having any understanding or idea about anyone around you. But at some point, you need to be formed into the kind of person who treats others with dignity and respect. See, when you come out of the womb, you come out unable to self-soothe or regulate your emotions, but at some point, you need to be formed into the kind of person that knows how to deal with their emotions in a healthy way. Unfortunately, some people never learn. See, from the moment you were born, you were being formed, whether by family or friends, the neighborhood you grew up in, the songs you listen to, the TV shows or the movies you watch. You're going to love this. At... I've been reading a study about um, these people were trying to find which generation, in recent times, is the most romantic. And can you guess which generation ended up being the most romantic? In other words, being um, people who care to give romantic gestures, romanticize, daydream and fantasize about falling in love. Do you know which generation, can you guess? Millennials. But if you think about it, I was reading, why is that the case? Why are millennials the most romantic generation? But think about the movies. And the TV shows that we watched growing up, right? All the Disney princes and princess movies, fairy tale endings, all the rom-coms, "How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days." All those things we watched growing up—it shaped our worldview. Think about the music we listened to growing up. The best era of music. We had Backstreet Boys. We had NSYNC. We had Britney. Boys to men. By the way, I'm Team NSYNC. Hot take. My wife is Team Backstreet. Okay, for another day. Mariah. Right. We had the generation of those sappy love songs and all of those things shaped us to be one of the most romantic generations. Some of y'all on the dating apps are like, I don't see it. But we are recorded as one of the most romantic generations. All these things shaped us and formed us. But here's the thing I want us to pay attention to. Even into adulthood, we never stop being formed. Right? The social media feeds we scroll through, they form us. The music we listen to, they form us. The books we read, they form us. The things we watch, the things we absorb, the things we set our gaze upon, they form us. And the question isn't, am I being formed, but who or what am I being formed by? Someone or something is always forming us whether we know it or not. Now, as followers of Jesus, our aim in life is to be formed, of course, by God the question I want to ask you is, are you being intentionally formed by God? You know, when we talk about spiritual formation, I know we like to think about, you know, getting better at prayer or learning to love reading scripture or reading our Bible more or becoming perfect like God. But what we're really talking about when we talk about spiritual formation is learning how to be human again. What do I mean? You know, we often say things like, yo, I really messed up. I'm only human, Right. Oh, I'm burnt out. I'm tired. I'm weak. You know why? I'm only human. We almost use humanity as an excuse, as if humanity is supposed to be defined by sinfulness or weakness or deficit. But understand this, sinfulness and brokenness, they're not true markers of humanity. God's original and pure design for humanity was wholeness, full of the spirit and life and joy, face-to-face relationship with their maker and living in perfect shalom with all of creation. And so when we talk about spiritual formation, we're talking about rediscovering our humanity the way that God intended, learning how to be human again the way God designed us to be. Now, where am I going with this? We're talking about worship. One way that God forms us to be more like him, to be human again, is through worship. See, oftentimes when we think about worship, we think like of an outward act, something that is coming up from us and going up to God. But how many of you know that worship has a way of transforming the worshiper? Right, That as we worship, we are being formed more and more into the likeness of the one we are worshiping. In other words, we have to start looking at worship not as just something we engage in or practice, but something that fundamentally transforms us from the inside out. We have to start looking at worship as spiritual formation. Now, one of the primary ways that we're formed as we grow up is through observation right Mo- much of what we learn in early childhood isn't taught it's caught right i can't sit with my infant son and say listen son you should not put electrical cords in your mouth. We have to show him when he's about to put in his mouth. No, do not do that. We can't show baby, we can't teach baby Zion. This is how you use a fork and a knife and a spoon and a cup. We have to model it. We have to show them. And they learn by observing and watching us. We have this toy at home that has suction cups, and I don't know how you're supposed to play with it, but for some reason I just started doing this thing where I take the suction cup and I just stick it to my head. And it stays there. And every time Zion sees it, he just busts out laughing. But n- the other day I noticed when he grabbed that toy, he kept doing this. I'm like, oh my God, I taught him something that is harmful to him. And he can't get it to stick. But, you know, he observed us and watched us. And I guarantee as he gets older and learns how to talk, he's going to pick up all the words we say, all the words we shouldn't say, and all the words we say. He's going to pick it up through observation. You know, last week we talked about worship as beholding God that, you know, for all of eternity, we're going to be able to enjoy worshiping God because we'll never run out of new things we're discovering about him as we behold him. We'll never get to the end of his beauty. Worship is beholding God. But how many of you know what you behold, you become what you behold, you become now, I know we have a lot of people that have been here for a minute, but if you don't know, my real name, my legal name, sorry for deceiving all of you, is actually Michael. My name is Michael Cho. It just, it's just, it's not on brand. I don't know why, but my name is Michael Cho. And Mickey, I don't know how I got the name Mickey. My cousins just randomly started calling me Mickey one day, and it just stuck. But anyway, I was named not after Michael the angel, not after Michael the, the significant meaning in the original language. I was named after Michael Jackson. My parents loved Michael Jackson. This is before all the scandals came out. He was the king of pop. He was on top of the world. And as I was growing up, I knew that I was named after Michael Jackson. And so I would spend hours watching Michael Jackson videos. There's even, I don't know if you know, there's a feature-length film featuring Michael Jackson where he turns into a chrome robot and a car. It's a really wild movie. I don't know what they were on when they made it. But I kept watching and beholding Michael Jackson, all of his glory and splendor. And you know what happened? I started dressing like him. I got a hat from my grandpa's closet, and I would wear it like this. And regularly, because I'm a weird only child, I would get in front of my family at family gatherings, and I would just go, ah! Like, I would just dance like Michael. See, as I beheld, I became. When I, um, st- when I got to high school, I started doing hip-hop and I started rapping. I was so into the hip-hop scene. And I went through different phases, right? I went through like a Nas phase, a Jay-Z phase. Those are the people in our time. And I, I, one day I got really into 50 Cent. And you know I was into 50 Cent because the next day at church, I was decked out in G-unit clothing, right? I, behel- I became what I beheld. What you behold, what you give your attention to, what you give your time, your energy, your resources to is what you become. The question is, what are we spending our lives beholding? Because ultimately, what we spend the most time beholding is what's going to shape us into the people we become. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18, it's a famous passage. Paul says, And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What's he saying? He's saying we with unveiled faces who can see God... As we behold God, we become like Him. We become loving like Him. We become joyful like Him. We become strong and immovable like Him. When we worship God, you know, we're not just saying you're worthy of receiving our worship, we're also saying you are worth becoming like. You are worth becoming like me, formed into the image of you. That is why I worship. See, this passage in Corinthians is actually referencing a story in Exodus about Moses going up to the mountain and meeting with God. If you're familiar with the story of Moses, he climbs the mountain, and he has this encounter with God that almost takes him out because God's glory is just too glorious to behold, and he barely makes it out alive. But when he comes down the mountain, Scripture says that people were t- Terrified of him because his face was glowing so brightly. It was so radiant, so bright. They had to put a veil over his face because it was that bright and brilliant. Why? Why was his face glowing? Because Moses had seen God and in beholding God, he became like him. His face shone the brilliance of the one that he saw. It's like when you come out of a really good worship service, you know, like Jacob like killed it today. It was a fire set. I'm sorry. I really messed up. I did a worship fail, by the way, last week. It was really bad. But anyway, when you come out of a really good worship set, it's almost like, like your face is glowing right? And you just have this aura about you. You're so pumped, so full of life and so full of joy. And you feel compelled to just love people really, really well. Have you ever been there? Like you walk out of church and it wasn't just a regular Sunday. It like hit home for you. And you just walk out with so much peace. Nothing can faze me. Oh my gosh. I just want to love you, brother, sister. Like you have so much radiating out of you. See, there's been a number of times where Krista and I, you know, we got into a fight right before service starts and, you know, when you get married, you'll, you'll understand. But, but there's been so many times where right before service, we, like, get into an argument, and we don't resolve the fight. But what's crazy is so many times when that happens, after service, we just, like, go up to each other, and we're both sorry and just ready to embrace. Why? It's not just because we we got high or we we got elevated in our emotions. because we beheld the one who loves us at our worst. We beheld the one who keeps no record of wrongs. We beheld love that is unconditional and never fails. You know, maybe you came into worship anxious one day. and, And after like a really good time in worship... You walked out and you came out full of peace about your circumstance. Why? Because you beheld the one who knows no anxiety or fear, who holds your future in his hands and is trustworthy, and you became like him. It's not just the emotional high of worship. It's because you become like the one you behold. And see, when we sing these songs on Sunday, you know, they do more than just please the heart of God. They have the power to transform us. You know, when when you sing I'm already loved More than I can imagine, and that is enough, right? That has the power to transform you. Like in a city like San Francisco, where your value is so tied to how much you can produce, you remember in that moment as you sing that you are enough in the eyes of the Father, that you don't have to do more, you don't have to add more to be loved and accepted by him, and that changes you. When you know that and you believe that at your core, it changes how you live. Right When you sing, faithful you are, faithful forever you will be. Right When you sing that, it transforms you in the middle of your storm. Maybe instead of freaking out, you remember the one who's been faithful before will be faithful again. And will be faithful every single day after. I'll tell you what, if you know that, you face that storm differently. We become like the one we behold. But check this out. What else happens is, what you see in him... Gets released in you. And so when you see. That he is the prince of peace. There is no panic. Or no anxiety in his eyes. All of a sudden his peace. Gets released in you. When you see the image of the father, not an angry American idol judge or contestant. When you see him as the loving, accepting father, his love and his delight gets released in you. You become confident because I'm already accepted. When you see the wounded one, you, you, you remember that he was broken on your behalf and by his stripes, you have been healed. His healing gets released in you. When you see the waymaker, the one who makes a way where there is no way, all of a sudden his miracles and his breakthroughs become possible in your life. This is why our songs matter. When we refocus our gaze on God, what we see in him gets released in us. I grew up in a typical Asian immigrant family, and if you grew up in an Asian immigrant family, chances are you have a specific image of God. And I'm just generalizing here, but most of my friends, we had daddy issues the same way, where you view God as like this angry, judgmental father, ready to like nitpick at every single thing you do wrong, and it's like you have to almost be perfect. You have to produce to get in his good graces. You know, I've been taught again and again and again that that is not who our father is. But you know what really fundamentally transformed me? It was, yes, that truth. But it was also the practice of singing that truth again and again. There's a song, How He Loves, right, famous song. There's a rendition that IHOP worship leader Jay Thomas sings where he goes, You delight, you delight, you delight in me. And it's literally like those um, the prayer, prayer houses where they repeat it literally like three trillion times and it gets annoying. But for me, as I was singing it, I start to believe it. And maybe I walk out of that service and I think again, I don't know if you delight in me. Did you see what I did last? Do you see how I implode all my relationship? But when I come back into his presence and I sing it again, you delight, you delight, it transforms me. And the more I sing it, the more I become like the truth that I am singing. And so as I kept singing, you delight, all of a sudden I'm ushered into a place where I'm loved and accepted by God. I don't have to work for his love. He already delights in me. This is the power of worship. What we behold, we become, and what we see in him gets released in us. But this is also why how we see God matters, Because you become like the thing you worship. Ying is going to love this. A.W. Tozer, famous theologian. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. As the Christian, how you see God affects everything. From what you feel, to the way you live, to the way you see or treat others. You know, this is why those who view God as an angry father ready to punish them for all the mistakes they make, they, they tend to live in complete fear and anxiety. Maybe some of you have known that because that's how you viewed God growing up. And this is why those who view God as a proud American, right, they're, they're, they're the type of people willing to storm our nation's capital and do all the atrocious things they did. How we see God affects how we live, who we become. And you know what the easiest way is to see if you have the wrong view of God? I'll give you very simple answers. Very easy. What is the fruit of your faith? What is the thing that's constantly reproduced in your mind and in your heart? What is the fruit of your relationships? What is the fruit, the evidence of your life? If you're constantly living tired and burnt out, chances are you have a fundamentally wrong view of God. You don't know he's the God of the Sabbath. If you're constantly imploding relationships all around you, constantly having to repair broken relationships with everyone in your vicinity, chances are you have the wrong perception of who God is. Are people experiencing love or something else around you? You know, see, for the longest time, we've relegated the responsibility of theology to pastors, And to teachers and to scholars. And by all means, we should be the ones that are studying, that are being able to present truth to you. But how many of you know that at the end of the day, it's the responsibility of every follower of Jesus to form and flesh out their own theology? What do I mean by theology? I'm not talking about rigorous study of all the specifics of the Greek and Hebrew. I'm talking about your understanding of who God is and how he works. Listen, church, I can come up here, I can do a sermon series about calling and destiny and spoon-feed you what I believe God says about those things, but at the end of the day, you're going to hold account for what you believe, and it's going to affect the way that you live your life. I can tell you what I believe God thinks about sexuality, but at the end of the day, you're going to have to figure out for yourself what you believe and how that affects how you treat others. I can help you, but at the end of the day, you're responsible For your own theology, you have to take seriously your understanding of who God is. Because if worship is beholding God and we become what we behold, we better take seriously who it is we're beholding. That we're seeing the right image of God. This is why the Pharisees in Jesus' time, they were so religious. They did all the right things. But their view of God was fundamentally flawed. And it changed everything about the way they lived. And so in response, there are just two questions I want us to reflect on today. Just no uh, three-point sermon today, sorry. But two questions that I want us to hold in our hearts as we engage in worship again, but also as we go throughout our weeks. The first question is this, is what I'm beholding what I want to become? What do I mean by that? What do I spend most of my time, energy, and resources on? And is that who or what I want to become like? And if so, all power to you. But if not, maybe you need to refocus your gaze. Maybe you need to set your eyes once more on the most important thing. And what I mean by beholding is where do I spend my time, energy, and my resources? What do I give my attention and my affection to? So the first question is what I'm beholding, what I want to become. And if it's not, maybe something needs to change. But the second question is this, what wrong perceptions about God do I need to let go of? Some of us, we haven't gotten over that image of God as an angry father. And we're constantly coming into church full of anxiety, wondering, does God actually love me as I am? Am I doing enough for him? Am I going to be punished? A lot of us carry that in our lives. Maybe your view of God is fundamentally flawed. What are the wrong perceptions about God that I need to let go of? All that to say, you are not an octopus. We need to be intentional about how we're being formed because sometimes I think we focus so much on who we are right now, but what's equally as important is who we are becoming. And so at this time, I just want us to close our eyes. I want to invite you into a time of response as we reflect on some of these truths. I want you to think about these two questions is what I'm beholding what I want to become. Am I beholding the right things in my life? Am I giving attention, time, resources to the thing that matters the most? Is what I'm beholding and giving all of my energy, all of my affection and attention to, is that who or what I want to become like? And if not, today is a simple call. To repent, you know, repent doesn't mean to grovel. It doesn't mean to be down on yourself and embarrassed. Repentance simply means to change your mind. To say, "I am going to decide today that God is the thing that I want to behold the most." It doesn't mean you have to spend. Three hours in scripture every day doesn't mean you have to have five-hour prayer meetings in your prayer closet at home. It simply means that I'm going to be intentional in everything that I do to give my attention and my affection to God. When I'm working, when I'm working out, when I'm eating, when I'm with friends, in everything that I do, I want to give my attention to you, God. Second question God, what wrong perceptions about you do I need to let go of? I feel like one of the things God wants us to give up is shame. Like some of us, were carrying shame. We've been carrying shame for so long. And we carry it because we think that God is ashamed of us because of our past, because of things we've done, because of the way we are. I just feel like God is calling you to give up that wrong perception. God is not ashamed of you. He's absolutely thrilled about you. This morning, as our team was praying, Seabell kept getting the word amen. Amen. And I just kept getting this image. God says amen over every single one of you over every single one of you, over every single one of his creations, he says, amen, yes, this is it. It's almost like an exclamation mark. Yes, I am pleased. Yes, you are, yes, I delight in you. And I feel like today God wants to break off shame off some of us. What are the wrong perceptions about God that you need to let go of?